Welcome to Conversations with Coley, where we have conversations about subjects we think about but often don't speak about. My name is Nicole Miller, and I'm the author of this book series, A Through Z, Guide to Raising a Good Human, a series I wrote to help in the communication process. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coley. Today I'm speaking to author Leslie Register. Leslie wrote the book Double Shot of Sober, A Story of Change, available on Amazon. Thank you for being here, Leslie. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So before we get started, I'm going to read the description of your book as it reads on Amazon. Okay. Double Shot of Sober is a story of hope and healing from addiction recovery. It is a woman's journey of a lifetime of transferring from one addiction to the next in hopes of finding that thing that would give her peace, serenity, purpose, and a sense of belonging. It was not until she stopped all the harmful ways of people-pleasing, eating disorders, overspending, overworking, and abusively drinking alcohol that she found that she found what she was seeking. Change was required for her to live life honest and free. As she journeyed through the messy, hard, and unknown by practicing daily prayer, reading books on recovery and wellness, claiming a seat in the 12-step program, collaborating with a therapist, laughing and crying with family and friends, and daily accepted life's, life on life's terms, she found wellness. No matter what happened, divorce, death, and even success— she showed up with a clear mind, body, and spirit and allowed the God of her understanding to direct her life. She desired desperately to live life honestly and free, and the day finally came, she felt like life was like wearing a loose shirt. This is a promise that one can experience as they uncover, discover, and take action on a journey of recovery. I love that. I Thank love you. that. Yes. So we're going to do the icebreaker and then we'll go ahead and get right into it. So can you share a memory or a moment in time where you pulled a prank on someone? What was it and what happened? Oh my God, I'm not really a prankster. Uh, um, but or, or maybe if somebody pulled one on you. Oh gosh, <laughs> you know, it's so funny as you just said that the first thing that popped in my mind is a story I shared recently how when... Um, I was a very young child, probably six or seven, and our house got flooded from a rainstorm and every room was flooded except for my room, but I wanted to be helpful and I wanted to be part of the cleanup and all that stuff. And so I got buckets of water and put it on the floor in my room and convinced <laughs> my mom that my room was flooded. So, you know, I, hence she figured out, you know, only one spot was wet, the rest <laughs> of the was dry. So it tried to be you. I don't know that it's a prank, but you know, no, that's still, yeah, you know, awareness and laughter. So that that's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, that's great. I love that. So tell everybody a little bit about your background. Okay, so gosh, I am um, a career woman. I've worked in the real estate commercial um, residential business for about 25 years in various aspects from training and marketing and sales and operations. I'm a mom. I have two um, wonderful, thriving children. Uh, became an empty nester in 21. So my son has graduated college. My daughter is finishing up college. Um, I just am delighted to be a mom. Um, I'm an entrepreneur, recently an entrepreneur, just in April. Um, began a journey of um, becoming an author, a coach, a speaker. Uh, so that's been a new journey. Um, so that is, you know, a little bit about me. I have a heart of service. Um, I understand um, the pain of li living life 
um, with these hidden secrets and trying to show up um, with presenting myself with, you know, joy and freedom and all those things that really I didn't have, but wanted to believe I had. And now I know what it's like to live the other side and live authentic and free. And um, so my hope is to share that awareness with others. Um, as I journey on. So. Yeah. And congratulations on the entrepreneurship and welcome to that. Cause that's, <laughs> that's a tough road, but I'll tell you there. Yeah. There are days when I feel like this is maybe harder than putting down the drink. <laughs> so. yeah. <laughs> yes. And other entrepreneurs will say that as well. Um, and until you really feel the journey, it, you just don't understand. I mean, people can warn you all they want, but when you're living it and doing it, so congratulations to you. Thank you. Yes. Did you experience any childhood trauma in your past? You know, it's interesting. And I've done some research on that um, and recently read a book that really brought light to the fact that um, there we can experience major trauma and significant and we can experience little traumas that affect us holistically in the similar way, right? That can mm-hmm. bring out to using different devices, um, as our coping mechanisms. So at this point in time, you know, I've been through recovery for 10 years. I've done a lot of work. I can't point to one specific trauma. Now, have I had consequences from, um, lies or, um, looking to get attention? Uh, you know, back in the seventies, there was not necessarily medication for ADHD or understanding some of the things we do today for um, learning disabilities and so forth, right? So there's a lot of discipline, right? From a very mm-hmm. young age, I would, you know, sit in coat closets when I couldn't sit still. I've been to a principal's office for misbehaving, you know, um, you know, maybe looks or um, I would say the best way to describe it is that I didn't necessarily, I heard words that people said that were positive and kind. You know, I talk about my parents being loving and supportive and I can do anything I want. But there were hidden messages or maybe facial expressions or experiences that led me to have a different feeling. Okay, so yeah, I can understand. Words that. at face value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was seeing what was not being told or, you know, curious to a point almost to default. So, uh, yeah, so I can't speak to one specific trauma, but yeah. I, I would say that there are things along my path that have probably impacted my choices. Yeah. 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 And body language and facial Mm -hmm. expressions, sometimes I think they speak louder than the words themselves. Mm -hmm. And kids are very perceptive to that. And I too kind of understand where you're going with the whole ADHD and untreated. I was born in the late seventies, but grew up in the eighties. And instead of people seeing you as like, you can't sit still and you're wiggling around, Mm -hmm. they looked at you as a problem and you had that label and you had to carry that on. Right. Exactly. Instead of saying, Hey, there might be something wrong with this kid. So can you talk about your journey with addiction and how it started? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So my earliest recollection of starting with addiction was at the age of 14. Um, At that time, you know, that awkward middle school um, feeling of, you know, I had body image issues, uh, not feeling a part of, not popular enough, you know, looked in the mirror and just didn't see the same girl that maybe other people saw. Um, And I had dealt with 
um, being called, you know, fat or, you know, just left out of the crowd. Again, because I was at times awkward, I talked too much, you know, there were, it was just who I was, right? Yeah. And so by the time I was 14, um, and I shared in the book, you know, I remember watching an after school special. Those are, you know, meant to give you awareness, right? You yes, know, I remember those. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this one was called Little Miss Perfect. Um, I actually looked it up to make sure I got it right. But in this story, it's a woman's, a girl's journey about um, bulimia. And as I watched this, instead of learning, gosh, that's really harmful, I thought, wow, that could be a solution. And uh -huh. that, isn't that crazy? So see, that's how my mind thought. And that, um, and that became my beginning to, you know, feeling uncomfortable, feeling uneasy and I could eat, but then I couldn't get fat. Right. Because then I would be unlovable and not wanted. Mm -hmm. So the purging was a way, um, you know, to feel like I had some control. I think the other part of eating disorder, what I come to know, it's really about wanting control. I think mm -hmm. all addictions are about control. You're not mm -hmm. feeling right. I'm going to look for something to help me feel better. And these are the tools I'm going to use. And I don't think they're acceptable to others. So I'm going to hide them. They're going to be my secret. And I'm not impacting anybody else, only myself. You know, yeah. those are the stories and the lies that we tell ourselves when we're in the middle of addiction. Yeah. When you were struggling with bulimia, were you actually overweight? Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. No. You know, I was... Um, Never did I have a doctor tell me I needed to lose weight um, or my family. Um, I had some awkward pudgy years, probably sixth grade. You know, I can remember being able to wear my mom's jeans. She was a very slender woman. Um, but no, when you looked around and looked at me compared to my other friends, I was average size. You know, so you would... had body dysmorphia. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so did that lead you into, um, as you got older, any other addictions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I got older, it was always about seeking something to fill the insecurity, feeling the anxiousness. Um, so I one was never enough. Right. So I always needed more. And so then it became, OK, now I'm an adult or I'm a teenager and I'm working and making money. So I overspent. Mm. Everything is in excess. Right. I spend what I don't have. I make up for it. Um, it led to, you know, the shopping issues that led to working, right? Because there was gratification in working. I found through my career, um, recognition, reward, um, praise, and I had uh, issues within my marriage. So I became married, uh, met my husband at 19. We were married by the time I was 22. Uh, I was very poor at having relationships, right? I talk about codependency. So from very early on, I was always a people pleaser. I want to tell mm -hmm. you what you want to hear. I want to do what you want me to do. Um, I will compromise my own values and beliefs to be who you need me to be, right? Yeah. Uh, at 15, I was very much ingrained in my um, faith and religion and working in my church and, and very much love that. But if you weren't in that circle, when I was with your circle, I was whoever you needed me to be. You need me to steal ah. cigarettes, I'll go steal cigarettes. So you were and like a chameleon to fit in. Yes, yeah, that's a great word. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's exactly right, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of transferred from one thing to the next. They, they just became survival mechanisms, really. And then when I hit my 30s, um, I found alcohol. Mm. Was there a significant um, event that had happened to get to spark that finding alcohol? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I had, you know, tempted drinking alcohol earlier, um, had, you know, bad experiences as a teenager. Um, as a young person in my 20s, I might have a glass of wine with my mom. So I'd, I'd done social and been mm-hmm. fine, didn't find any kind of feeling from it that I wanted. Um, but as I entered uh, my 30s, I was uh, traveling for work significantly. I was uh, on the road uh, corporate trainer. I had now two children. So I had a four-year-old and a, and a one-year-old or three-in-one, uh, a marriage that, you know, you can only live trying to please someone for so long and denying yourself mm-hmm. and living through things that you would um, not accept, but you're choosing to accept because you mm-hmm. don't want to be alone. Uh, so really everything I think just compounded. And so I was at uh, an event and I remember, you know, being asked at this work event, hey, you know, you want this, want to try this beer? And um, that day, Corona Light and Lime felt a lot better than it ever had. And that was the beginning. So I do feel that, you know, things were just compounding. It, and, yeah. and that chemical just eased um, in a way that I had not felt before. Yeah. So how did that um, start affecting your relationships as you were, you know, kind of sinking in the what I like to call the rabbit hole of addiction? Right. So in the very early days, um, you know, there was a control to it. There was a socialization to it. But at the same time, I found that um, the liquid gave me some ability to be more honest. Right. That liquid courage. Yep. So sadly, you know, in the beginning, I was able to start to speak up, but then I ended up, uh, I share in the story in my book, you know, I ended up divorcing the relationship, which was, which was for the right thing because we were not right. But that led me to doing more harmful activities when I didn't have the children. Right. So when I was a parent, I was a parent and I showed up and I did what I had to, when I wasn't, I was more playful and just being a little more um, rebellious. Um, And then about four years in to, you know, this lifestyle of single mom and trying to navigate career and all this stuff and dating. And uh, I hit a wall and I ended up, you know, going to the emergency room for alcohol withdrawal. That was my first attempt and didn't realize the harm I was doing. Right. I thought I was drinking like my friends. I thought I was doing what other normal people do, you know, yeah. five o'clock happy hour, right? Yeah. Every night. Yeah. Right. And the doctor's like, you drink every night and you then decide you don't want to, it is going to have an impact. Right. And so that um, was my first um, experience. And that was about four or five years in and then to the drinking. And then I decided, gosh, I need to get my act together. And, you know, family and friends telling me, oh, you don't really have a problem. You're just falling on hard times. You're not adapting to divorce. You know, all the things people might tell you that yeah. can't really see. And uh, so I say under the influence because I was not well. I, I attempted to do 12-step recovery. I attempted to stop drinking. But I wasn't well. I wasn't taking the steps I needed to, to do the right thing. And um, I put my uh, children and their father through another journey of let's get back together because I couldn't be honest. Right. But I knew what people pleasing was. I knew what being dishonest was. I knew all these other things. So we ended up getting back together. Um, and then that five years that we were remarried, um, I drank every day in my closet and that's when it got worse. Right. Because there's no fun in that. There's no fun in trying to disguise alcohol inside of a shampoo bottle, um, in order to, that's your medicine, right? Because yeah. that what happens is the addiction becomes, you don't want it, but you can't live with it and you can't live without it. It's necessary. 
it's necessary, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. that's the harm. Um, and so in, in, in hiding it in mm -hmm. shampoo bottles and drinking in your closet, was it obvious to your family? Were you doing a good job at hiding it or did they know? Um, sadly, and I say sadly, um, I did a decent job of hiding it um, mm. because when I did finally admit um, that I was going to go through recovery, uh, my children were a little confused. They did not see it. Now I say that, I think it was a little, I would have to say it's a little of both. Um, there was not an awareness or a um, in some regards, a complete openness by all family members. And I would say my ex-husband. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I think that was a lot for him, right? Here he is believing that this woman is who she is, what he wants to believe he sees and what she's led him to believe. And she's really hiding this addiction. And I had been to the hospital during that five-year secret drinking. I had been to the hospital again. Um, and you know, just continued to say, oh, I fell, you know, I overdid it and made excuses and I was believed for that. Um, so at the very end, uh, there was some confusion, I think, in my children because I hid it quite a bit from them. Um, they've come to know more and see more as we've talked about the stories and experiences. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my mom, my dad, they were very grateful that I finally really did, you know, get myself into a journey of recovery, but yeah. I didn't have people doing an intervention on me. Um, I, I didn't suffer many consequences yet that some people have, right. I didn't end right. up in jail. I don't have DUIs. I don't have some of the things that other people do that would make it really Those visible. trigger moments. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. So it was a unique journey for everybody. Yeah. So for you, what was that? I call it the rock bottom moment, but what was that moment where you were like, I really need to just do this and do it for real? Yeah. Uh, so in 2012, I was on a work trip, um, enjoying, you know, we, a couple of days away, lots of partying and, and stuff. And it had started to catch up with me because now I was not, you know, hiding it at home or kind of managing it a little bit at a time. I was open with other people. Um, and, um, okay. So 2012 at this work event, end up partying for a few days, overdid it. Cause normally I tried to like really control kind of the time I did it. So I didn't overdo it or end up getting myself in trouble. So, but at that event, I didn't, I came back and I, I, before that I had really known for a few months before that I just didn't want to do this anymore. I was just exhausted. It's a full-time job. Yeah. You know, getting to the liquor store, hiding it, working, going to soccer matches, like everything you're doing, right? I was exhausted. And so after this event, um, I knew that I had overdone it. I was feeling sick and anxious. I was going to need to go back to the hospital. I called a dear friend of mine and I said, I'm having an anxiety attack, but it is alcohol related. I just need help. And her um, fiance came and stayed with my kids. She took me to the hospital and there the nurse said, you know, as she's treating me, she said, you know, you're the reason I still go to meetings after seven years of sobriety. That's a God moment, right? And that gives me chills today. And so that really started to just spark hope, right? And, and a path towards change mm -hmm. at that event. So I can't say it was a huge, you know, yeah, burning bush moment, but it was enough for me. That's, that's yeah. what recovery is about whoever the person is, when they reach their moment, that it is enough for them, it's enough. 
Yeah. Um, and so that began my journey of recovery. Now I will tell you it was messy and I talk about it in the book for the first five months, I was not done. I still yeah. tried because God, it's, you know, it was shameful. It was not me. That's not the person I am. Um, withdrawals and, are hard. Yeah. You know, and then, so, you know, you get through that and then you've got to start feeling your feelings. So yes. the, the days of dealing with the physical was okay. But then now I'm like, okay, I don't feel, I don't feel right. I don't, somebody upset me. I'm angry. I'm whatever I am. And I had to learn how to manage my feelings and learn how to manage my choices. And that's what recovery does. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard for people who struggle with addiction to feel those feelings without help. And that's tough. So mm -hmm. what were some of the things that you did to start seeking help? What were some of your first steps? Yeah. So my first steps were attending a 12-step recovery program. Um, and I, you know, share that my journey was Alcoholics Anonymous. There are so many that are available. Not That's not a one fit all for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but my recommendation is, and what worked for me, is getting a part of a community. I needed to see that other people had recovered. I needed evidence, testimony. Uh, it helped to see the joy and the freedom that other people had so yeah. that I could feel like that was possible for me. So the community engagement was important. Um, being honest. So honesty, first and foremost, I had to be straight up honest. Um, I could not do it alone. So I have a mentor a therapist. I had to pick some trusted people and my family are amazing. My mom and dad, um, I love them, you know, to pieces and, but they couldn't be my, they couldn't be my resource. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed them as support. Um, but they couldn't, they couldn't help me in this journey because they didn't have reference to it. I didn't come yeah. from an alcoholic home or any kind of recovery. Um, so those were critical, right? A community, a, a person that I could confide in, um, getting honest, um, you know, prayer, absolutely, 100%. God had to give me the strength and guidance. This, I always say, God brought me to recovery and recovery brought me to God into a yeah. relationship that I have today. You know, it's not about a building. It's about a faith. Right. Um, yeah. So, and then writing. So that's where my journey of writing began. It was really oh, 10 awesome. years ago. Yeah. yeah. And writing is so therapeutic. Um, mm. I have been writing too. And I'll tell you, you start to feel the loads that you've been carrying lift right. away and then you feel lighter and then new ideas can come in because mm -hmm. when we're carrying so much, new ideas cannot come in because right. we're already full. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like, you got to get some of it out, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what kind of lifestyle changes did you have to make when you were on the recovery journey? Like sometimes I think people think they can keep their same lifestyle when they're in addiction mm -hmm. and then they keep falling back because you do have to make lifestyle changes. So what were some that you had made? Yeah, um, that is a, a great question. And I would say the first thing that comes to mind is friendships. You know, I have some very core friends that I love dearly and I've had for a long time. Um, a couple um, that are really close, but they were also fun to drink with and party with. And they handled alcohol differently than I did. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had to, you know, separate for a time. And that didn't mean I didn't take phone calls or maybe chat, you know, here and there, yeah. but there was not the same engagement. So I changed um, my activities, um, became um, present, uh, 
I stopped isolating, right? So I could be in the home with all of, you know, my, the husband, the kids, family over and be isolated. I could find myself hiding out in a room or not participating. Uh, over time, our family dynamic, you know, during the addiction was, you know, one child in one room, one in another, the husband in one, me in another. And so I had to come out and start to engage and do activities, right, in a different way. Um, and so I would say the biggest thing is changing some of my friendships and activities, getting more present with my family. Um, participating in pro and community was important. So I did a lot of service work mm -hmm. uh, that was critical to my recovery. And so very early on, it was going to meetings as well as, as speaking at treatment centers, taking people to meetings, just being engaged and involved in volunteer work uh, were some critical things that I did. Um, so service at home, service in the community uh, were vital. That's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have any relapses after you had made that conscious decision? Not after um, February 19th of 2013. So in September yeah. 1st, you know, I had four or five months of going to meetings, doing some service work. So I was having that experience of getting recovery information. I call it my mm -hmm. curiosity phase. Uh, so during my curiosity phase, I had moments where I did relapse. Yeah. Um, but when February 19th came, it, I never went back and I've never had a desire uh, to go back and it has been full force ever since. And I know it's a day at a time. Yeah. For me, um, I don't have any, any interest in doing it again. Yeah, that's great. And I asked that question because a lot of people who struggle and stay in it use that Well, I relapsed. And so therefore mm -hmm. I can't recover and they try to give up then. And I like to mm -hmm. highlight that in recovery, it's possible, but, mm -hmm. and you will relapse. Right. I mean, it's not an easy mm -hmm. task. It's not an easy task at all. Yeah. And I had started, you know, I talk about in the book, um, in 2008, I had my first, you know, um, alcohol withdrawal, went to the hospital, went to an AA meeting. I tried, but I wasn't ready. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. We like change and recovery is about being ready, full mm -hmm. force, honest readiness. And when you're there, the process will unfold if you continue down that path. And those, the people that I know that have a successful recovery journey say the same thing. It's full mm -hmm. readiness and willingness to change. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Mm -hmm. So how can we change the stigmas that we attach to recovery and addiction? Because I swear that if you tell people, hey, I'm a recovering anything, people look at you like, oh, you know what I mean? And so yeah. how can we change that social stigma that people mm -hmm. attach to a recovering addict or to addicts at all? Yeah, that's, uh, I love that question. And that's really what I'm advocating for is to change the perception. Uh, I think the biggest thing is people believe that it's willpower, mm -hmm. that you're doing this to yourself. You made a conscious decision uh, and you should be able to stop it. Right. And I have a lot of strength successful in my career, present in a lot of ways. Uh, but I did not know that when I chose to, you know, dabble in something or try something, especially alcohol, let's talk about the chemical, right? Um, I didn't know that it would have the effects on me that it did. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know until you go there, right? There's not, it's not on my birth certificate. Hey, if she drinks alcohol, <laughs> she, you know, yeah. Not my, all right. Now my doctor said, um, 
uh, he understood addiction. He had a family member with addiction. And he said, just like you have blonde hair and green eyes, you were wired to be an addict, but you wouldn't know it until you try it. I didn't know that the chemical would um, metabolize the way that it does, right? So there's an allergy that is associated with chemicals. Um, there are effects that happen by the different addictions. And so the, I guess I think two things. One is those who are recovering or going through it have to be willing to share the testimony and the freedom and the joy that comes from it. Right. So that it helps to minimize that negativity, right? And for those who don't understand it, to have a more open mind, right? My mom dealt was um, diagnosed with cancer when I was 90 days sober. Mm -hmm. And so for 18 months, I was a caretaker for her. And, and sadly, she passed. But if she told people she had cancer, nobody looked at her poorly. Right. right? Her job wouldn't tell her not to talk about it, right? Right. Um, Yet, if I go in and I tell people I'm a recovering alcoholic, it's like, oh, well, we can't oh, say that. Yeah. Right? It's like, they're like scared for themselves. I'm like, I'm yeah. not, <laughs> this isn't contagious, right? <laughs> yeah. So, right. Yeah. So I guess I, I would say two things. The, the stigma reduces the more that people who can share about the journey and who show up looking and feeling like maybe the person that's their neighbor that it's the average person next door that goes through these things. This is, mm -hmm. this is not a, you know, a secret society. This is not a stigma of somebody on a park bench with a brown paper bag, mm -hmm. right? Um, that is where an addiction can take them, but it's likely that that person was once a CEO. You don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Right? So I think that it really is about awareness. It's about education. Um, and it's about people's willingness to listen and accept and be um, forgiving and supportive. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, I don't want I don't want any special treatment. Right. I just want to be known. Yeah, right? I just want to be authentic. I want it to be okay that I came through these things. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that anyone wants to wear a label. You know, mm -hmm. everybody goes through something. Everybody has a backstory. We all get to where we get. And mm -hmm. we all go through the things we go through. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think hugely that if people can stop attaching that stigma of, oh, Mm -hmm. can't drink right. around you or, oh, mm -hmm. you know, and they put that label on you of recovering addict. Well, that's not mm -hmm. who you are. Mm -mm. It's just yeah. what you went through. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. 100%. Is recovery possible for all who want it? It's hmm. a great question. I was asked that too um, before. From my perspective, I believe that recovery is available for all who want it. Um, they have to seek it. They have to chase it. They have to do the work. Um, family members can't do it for them, right? Um, that is a that is part of um, you know. Family members have their own journey of recovery, right? Because they want to fix and control and change. Mm -hmm. um, so my first thought is that yes, it is available. Does it look differently for everyone? Yes, everyone has their own unique journey, right? Um, because there is mental illness, there is significant trauma that people go through. So there are things and there are different addictions that are handled in different ways. So I can't speak to everyone mm -hmm. um, and all, but I do believe that if someone recognizes and has the capacity to recognize that they're doing something that is harmful and they don't wanna do it, that if they reach out, there are resources to help them to seek recovery and to find it. 
Um, yeah. Right. But I can only speak to those that, um, that I guess I feel have the capacity to do that. Right. I can't speak for maybe there's unknowns or certain medical um, situations that people can't. So, yeah. right. So to say all means it's an absolute. So I, I, I guess for my heart, I have to be willing to say, uh, you know, I, I believe that it's possible. Um, but I, I I, I couldn't necessarily say that it, it's all. It's not guaranteed. Not guaranteed. That's the yep. word I'm looking for. And I'm glad that you word. brought up the point about the family and friends and the mm -hmm. control that they have. Because I think sometimes with people who struggle harder, mm -hmm. their family tries to be like, just get help. Just do mm -hmm. the recovery. And it puts a lot on that addicted person to say, yeah. you know what? You're, you're pressuring me too much. Because it has to be for those who seek it and want it. You have to want it and your family can't make you want it. Right. So, and the hardest part too, for the family, I just want to add is yeah. that the letting go. Yeah. Right. To let, it's very difficult. You know, I'm a mother and if there comes a point in time where my children, God forbid, had a problem, um, I can't enable it. Right. And I, I can't protect it. And, um, that when somebody is suffering and going through an addiction, it's their choice. And while parents may not want to see grave harm come to their children, the only way that someone can get recovery, I believe, is when they have enough pain. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad telling me that, right? When you have enough pain, you'll find a way out. And if we don't allow people to have their own pain to write their story, they may not seek recovery. And that's very hard for families. And so I always advocate for families to seek support so that they can learn their own ways of handling and letting go um, and taking care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how hard the work is, because sometimes I think when family and friends or people who are struggling with addiction, they go, just get help. It's easy. Just get help. Go to this 12 steps. <laughs> Let's talk about how hard it is. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the reality of it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like I got to drive by 12 liquor stores before I get to that meeting, right? Yeah. <laughs> very easy to turn in, right? Um, candy bars are sold at every convenience store, right? Um, exactly. You know, retail therapy is easy when you got some money in your pocket. Uh, so, yes. So, um, you know, it is, it's messy and it is hard. You know, I remember I didn't want to call people. I didn't want to call women in the program, let's say, and say, hey, I'm struggling today or I'm having an issue. I didn't want to tell you my problem. I wanted to internalize it. I knew how to internalize. I knew how to eat over it, drink over it, right? So it's hard because you have to be honest. You have to show up and do things that you may not have feel comfortable doing in the beginning, meet new people, um, be willing to call someone when you feel tempted, uh, to feel vulnerable. So for me, a lot of it, the pain was the vulnerability, um, reaching out, uh, seeking support, showing up to do service work, um, feeling the anxiety and, and trying to incorporate different things in my life, right? Different exercise uh, activities. Um, parenting had to, you know, that looked different, right? Trying to get stronger on my decision-making right? Because my kids before, they might be able to manipulate me for something and I might have agreed to it because I wanted just to let it be done and I'm going to go have a cocktail to ease the pain, right? Mm -hmm. So you're avoiding stuff. And so now I couldn't avoid things. So you have to learn how to get in the middle of it and show up. And, and that is just, 
emotionally and mentally, I think for me, uh, was the hardest part was mm-hmm. navigating all that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you got to feel the feels. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. You got to do yeah. that and, um, and be willing to cry in front of people and, and laugh with people. So that was for me, the, the difficult part, right. That I, for whatever reason, for many years, I didn't feel safe to do that. Um, I've had people say, we've never seen you cry in front of us. So it was almost, you know, 40 before I was okay shedding a tear in a public meeting to share about my pain or my uncomfortableness. Yeah. So that, that's the biggest part. Yeah. And I I think you've hit it right on the head because I, you know, you can try to explain that, but when people hear it from others and they hear it from more, they go, Oh, maybe they do have a point. You can't hear it from one person and believe it. You have to hear it from everyone. So talk about our, your book, what inspired you to write it? Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, so I began a writing journey in recovery uh, 10 years ago. Uh, before then, I had no interest really in writing, read very little, had very poor comprehension. Like I said, I had learning disabilities very young. Um, but writing became very therapeutic, as we've talked about, right? Words on paper reveal solutions. They bring you to uncover the problem, uh, find the solution, set goals, Uh, So I began writing and then uh, that free writing over time, I really had a desire to share the story. Um, I would say very early on after a few years into recovery, I was not embarrassed by my journey. I was open to discuss it. Uh, I respected anonymity in the group that I was in, uh, but was okay letting people know about my journey. Um, So from there, you know, free writing Started to organize it, um, began working with a writing coach about nine months ago, um, went, did an online workshop about publishing, and just continued that process until I formulated this um, book and um, decided to send it to print. Yeah. And, yeah. So that's that's the journey. And I'm I love very it. grateful for it. I love it. Um, do you offer any programs to help people? Yeah. So I, um, I am a uh, professional speaker and coach. Uh, I do offer one-on-one and group coaching. Um, I have a Facebook group, uh, Double Shot of Sober, uh, that anyone is welcome to join. It is private once you're in so that the content and any stories or shares stay within the group. Um, that is a great way to reach me, but I, I do offer one-on-one and a group coaching centered around change and recovery. And so we work through a three-step program, which is Uncover, Discover, and Act. And that is the foundation um, that I believe recovery is about, uncovering that truth, uncovering the pain points, discovering solutions, and then setting action goals, and then working through that. Uh, so those are services that I do provide in order to help people on their journey. Awesome. And when, you, when you're doing your speaking engagements, how can people find those? Yeah. Um, So some of the events, um, I have a workshop coming up in Orlando that I'm partnering with some other women. It's a caregiver um, targeted event in Orlando, Florida in October. Um, There is information on my Facebook group um, for that. Um, I have a website, leslieregister.com, which does outline more about my speaking and coaching services. So people can go there to take a look at testimonials or what type of topics I have. Um, I can customize talks to um, different groups. So I have a, um, a work, uh, 
company or an association that is having me in November that I'll speak about wellness in the workplace. Uh, I've done a radio show, Wellness in the Workplace um, speaking. So right now it's in its early stages. So I don't yeah. have any larger platforms outside of that workshop in October. Um, but anytime I have something coming up, it will be on my um, it'll be on my website. I do have a Facebook Live tonight uh, with my daughter. We're going to talk about recovery and I'd like to do more of those. So I, um, awesome. social media is a great place to find me, Leslie Register. Um, and so my Facebook group or social, I'll post for live events or workshops. Awesome. I'm going to definitely check that out. So I'll be sending you a friend request because okay. I want to see your live. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that wellness in the workplace is pivotal because a lot of times, especially with drinking, I think uh, sometimes if our jobs are high pressure, then mm -hmm. that's our outlet. And yeah. then it can turn into an addiction that we don't realize. So I think that's great that you're hitting those workplaces. And are you willing in the future to go outside of the state of Florida? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I should, yeah, I should mention I'm in South Carolina right now. Okay. <laughs> my home is Florida. Uh, well, my home was Florida. I just relocated in April. Um, so I'm open to go anywhere. So okay. I yeah, so I I'm, a, I'm a former Floridian myself. Oh, okay. When I saw you were from Palm Harbor, I'm like, girl, I <laughs> I worked in Holiday, I lived in Hudson, oh. we were neighbors. <laughs> yes, we were. Oh my gosh, I went to Tarpon High. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm actually I passed by asking. there. <laughs> so funny. I have um in January, I'm going to speak for the Christian athlete um group. So oh, that was pretty. Cool neat yeah i haven't been back to my high school in 30 years so it's pretty fun. oh wow and we're neighbors again because now i'm in georgia you're in south oh, carolina <laughs> there you go right we'll just follow each other yeah <laughs> yeah so is there anything else that you would like to share um you know i just think that uh well let me start with i love this platform and thank you for the questions i think this was yeah. really supportive and i love that you touched on um, helping us remove the negative stigma that society yeah. has, right? Because that's where healing begins. I'm a true advocate for speaking about addiction and recovery because the more we talk about it in our schools and our boardrooms and our churches and around our dinner table and make it a comfortable conversation um, where, you know, when I was 18, I did reach out to a doctor for my eating disorder. And at that time he said, well, we can put you in a treatment center. And all I remember thinking is I'd have to tell my parents, oh my God, the shame and embarrassment, my church wouldn't understand. I can't go to like, what are you talking about? Yeah. My head right. And the, the fear. So if we can change, and I believe there is change happening. We're talking a lot more about mental health today. We're, we're more aware. We're bringing things to the forefront. So the more we talk about it, the more my hope is that young people, especially when they begin those early years of things starting that they can reach out and say, Hey, mom or dad, I need help. Hey, teacher. Hey, friend. And that it is something that's so common that we can start to treat early, right? Yes. It's that early prevention um, and understanding. And so that that's my hope is that that message will get out and we'll start to impact change sooner than later. Yeah, I completely agree. That is my hope as well. Um, that's why I wrote, I'm writing my book series, uh, Guide mm -hmm. to Raising a Good Human. And volume mm -hmm. S touches on substance abuse, sex, mm -hmm. and suicide, and how to talk to your children from a young age yeah. about all these things. Because when you and I were growing up, it was secret. Oh. 
We didn't talk mm-hmm. about our problems. We didn't tell people we were mm-hmm. awkward socially. We hit it and we had to act a certain way because there was a certain standard mm-hmm. that we had to uphold. And so a mm-hmm. lot of things got swept under the rug and it's not helping. It's making mm-hmm. it worse. So in today's generation, my younger kids are like mm-hmm. telling people I'm socially awkward. It makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. And they're using their communication yeah. skills to say, hey, this is who I am and you're just going to have to like it or lump it. And so now it's time to bring to the forefront these other mm-hmm. issues so that mm-hmm. our future generations don't have to suffer. So I completely agree. And I thank you so much for sharing on this podcast. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And I love hearing what you're doing. And I think that, yes, the younger they are and the more open and honest we are at the right level, right? In the right words, it is hugely impactful for our future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I think kids are starting to dabble into things um, that we wouldn't think of at younger and younger ages. And so if you can get them in the two, three, four, five of just mm-hmm. engaging in a conversation so that when you do try to touch those hard subjects, they're not looking at you like, why are you talking to me now? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just more of a conversation. It's more normal, right? Yeah. Normal. Yes, 100%. Anything else you want to share with us? No, I don't have anything else. This has been fantastic. Thank you for your time. Yes, and it was so nice to meet you. And I'm going to hit you with a friend request after this. Thank you so much. I would love that. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. If you like this and other episodes, please click subscribe, like, and share so others can enjoy them too. Thank you so much for listening.